0: So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to Patreon.com/slash/FilmWhiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on Patreon.com/slash/FilmWhiskey. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey podcast everybody. Today we will be discussing the director Charles Sir Charles Chaplin and scoring him out as every single
1: director loves for people to do. Then we're going to be trying five whiskeys and throwing over to an interview with our friend Mariah Gates as she gives her top 5 silent movies for beginners. This is the Film and Whiskey podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And today, Brad, it is time for us to score out Charlie Chaplin on the four movies that we watched from him. If you're new to the podcast, we've been doing this thing for the the past two seasons, where we watch a number of movies by a given director, and then we take those movies and we pass them through a five-point metric to figure out numerically, mathematically, how good of a director are you? Brad, if there's one thing I've learned about art, it's that passing it through a mathematical metric is the way to evaluate it easily. yeah, <laughs> it's by far the best way to do it. I don't know why when you go to
0: like art museums, they don't have like scoring cards you know, scoring, yeah. yeah, scoring cards for you to fill out. And then, like, you know, maybe like attach two or three professional critics cards like underneath each painting mm. or, or sculpture. So you can kind of compare and contrast what, how you think about it versus what they think. The thing is, as much as I'm saying this is a joke, there's part of me that's like, oh, I would actually kind of enjoy that.
1: Yeah, I would enjoy it <laughs> until I saw like the post-it note that someone wrote next to a Picasso that's like, it's too blue or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, all right, Brad, let's talk about this metric. So we established this five point metric last season in a bonus episode when we tried to establish like what makes a good director? What are the things that when you talk about somebody being good at directing movies that they're actually good at doing? And we tried to break these down into five distinct categories. Brad, can you remind our listeners of what those categories are and what they mean? Performances are
0: how good at directing actors and actresses is this director. Cinematography is what do I see on the screen and how much is it pleasant and attractive and, and work with what he's trying to do. Editing is sound and visual. So the the cutting of the film, uh, you know, when, when you think about The Lord of the Rings, when you think about the good, the bad, and the ugly, like, the the movement from scene to scene is different in these movies, like, and and who does it the best? Cohesion is how well does the film stick together? And this can be story-wise, it can be acting, it can be editing, but, like, all together, how much does the film have consistency? And then finally, uniqueness, and this is looking at the director and saying, you know, within the pantheon of all films and then also like within his contemporaries, how unique are you? What what ideas are you bringing to the table that are unique? Uh, what camera movements are you using that are unique? How how much can I say, you know, watch a, a scene from a film and immediately go, oh, that's that's David Lynch or oh, that is uh, Billy Wilder with, you know, just at the drop of a hat. How unique are they?
1: Nicely done, sir.
0: Oh thanks, man. And, I appreciate and it. with that,
1: without further ado, folks, let's talk about Charles Spencer Chaplin. Brad, I was a little bit taken aback at I don't want to say the the meh response that you had to Chaplin, because I think it was largely positive. Uh, but you were not as over the moon for Chaplin as I thought you might be. I I just find his movies to be an utter delight. And they work from people from ages, you know, three to a hundred and three, and uh they did not work on you as effectively as I thought they would. I mean, what he is known for and like
0: famous for worked for me, like his his true silent film era. The one movie that was filmed and directed in a time where all the movies were silent films worked for me. hundred hmm. percent. I was in. It was the movies that he made when silent films weren't a thing anymore and he was still sticking to it or, you know, The Great Dictator, his first foray into talkies. That's when I just I I just wasn't as impressed with him as a director. So I I don't know, man, I'm going to put this back in the ball back in your court and
1: say maybe you should have picked better movies. I will say I have gotten multiple people writing to me saying I can't believe how wrong Brad was about The Great Dictator. In particular, The Great, like, not Modern Times, not City Lights. People really seem to like The Great Dictator, and they really seem to not like you as a result. What, what Was it The Great Dictator or the fact that I don't like Ikea
0: that really got people <laughs> I rate? That's, That's what that really episode. pushed
1: people over the edge.
0: <laughs> like, I started them off there and just pushed them off the edge with my take on the movie, and so they
1: just lumped <laughs> me in as a terrible person. All right, man. Let's talk about the performances in Chaplin's movies. I think that if there's anywhere, well, there's a couple other categories, but I think if there's anywhere that he's really going to shine, it's going to be in directing actors, including himself. We've talked about that iconic final shot of City Lights, where it's just the close up on him at his most destitute as the tramp, not knowing if he's going to be accepted by the flower girl. Uh, We talked about Paulette Goddard in Modern Times and how good she was. We talked about uh, her dad in The Great Dictator and how that guy's not funny at all. And Chaplin did a great job of leveraging that. I think that whether it is in choreographing people on screen to do these elaborate gags or in drawing really good dramatic performances out of people, I think across the board, man, his his direction of actors is top notch. I'm going to give him a nine and a half here.
0: Yeah, I'm at a nine and a half as well. I I think that Chaplin himself is an incredible actor. We, we talked a lot throughout the episodes about even just the way he, his, his famous way he walks and goes up and down stairs and he keeps his feet open to the world. Mm -hmm. And and it just gives a, a arc to his character that like so few other characters in film history have. So, yeah, I I think that the performances are stellar here and and easily will be his highest
1: category in my mind. I think cinematography does kind of rival it, though, Brad. And and in particular, I'm thinking of when we watched The Gold Rush, we were talking about the special effects that he had on the screen and like an early version of green screening, kind of, if you can call it that. When these people are out on this sort of like overhanging cliff and there's these big collapses, I think the way he uses the camera is really, really clever. I know you weren't a huge fan of modern times, but the scene where they're in the department store and he's about to roller skate off into the abyss. You should look up sometime how they pulled that shot off because it was it was all done in camera, but it was done by layering matte paintings through like they painted onto a sheet of glass and then filmed through the glass so that it looked like he was coming up against a big drop off when there was actually nothing there in real life. Mm -hmm. Really, really clever use of special effects. And I think he's really good at using the camera to tell the story, not to be showy. Like, there's not a a ton of like, oh, my gosh, what a shot, even though we had that one in the gold rush that we loved. Mm -hmm. Um, But just economical, efficient use of the camera. And I think that using the camera like that doesn't get high marks often enough. And I'm going to give it to him here. I'm going to give him a nine out of ten.
0: Yeah, honestly, I was going to give him an eight out of 10 here. But the story about how he he shot that roller skating scene is like, that's incredible. That's just really, really cool. I, I think that he does a great job with the camera. And that shot you mentioned from Gold Rush, when everybody takes to the dance floor, but him is probably like a top five favorite shots that I've ever seen in a film. So I'll give
1: him an eight and a half here. All right, that takes us to editing. And I think last time we did this with uh, Catherine Bigelow, Brad, I said that I have finally figured out how to separate in my mind the editing and the cohesion categories. And editing is the rhythm of the movie, right? Does the movie drag? Is the movie cut well? And then cohesion is like, does the director build a plausible world for these characters? That's kind of Mm -hmm. how I think about it, at least. I think that I'm going to still give him very high marks in cohesion. But in editing, I'm just going to give him an eight and a half. I really love these movies, and so I'm probably scoring him higher than you will here. But The Great Dictator is like at least 10 minutes too long. Uh, I think that there are certain moments in even modern times, my favorite movie of his, where it does get a little repetitive towards the end. It's like, all right, we're going back to the factory again. Like we're going to do this, this whole feeding a guy through a chicken carcass thing again. So if there's anywhere that I think he suffers, it is in editing, but he still gets an eight and a half for me. Yeah, this is this is where I think he struggles the most is knowing when
0: to stop a gag. Even in the gold rush, there were certain gags that just went on way too long. I, I think that this is by far his weakest category, and it's the reason I struggled with his movies. So I'm going to give it a
1: six out of ten. here. Oof, man. All right. So cohesion, then, on the other hand, even if the movies drag at certain points, I think that he really does build these fantastic worlds where it has one foot in reality, one foot in kind of heightened comedy. I think about modern times where it's like they're living in a shack on the edge of a lake that is clearly being used for, like, dumping toxic waste. You know what I mean? Like, it's just there's just little things where, yeah, this seems plausible, but it's also like a place that it makes sense that the little tramp would live. And I think he does such a great job of finding those worlds and not making them too fantastical and also making it make sense that a character like the tramp could plausibly exist there. This might actually be his best category for me. I think I'm going to give him a 10 here, Brad. That's interesting.
0: I For me, I think the performances are easily the highest category. Um, I'll give him an eight out of 10 on cohesion. I think that he builds really interesting worlds And I think that he he has interesting characters. I think that there's just enough of a hindrance for me in enjoying the worlds that he builds that keep me from giving it a really high score here. So I'll give him an eight out of 10 here. I think that when it comes to uniqueness, this is where I have no idea how to score him because compared to every other movie I've ever watched in my life. Yeah, this is very unique. Uh, but I've not watched any other silent films, Bob, so I'm going to let you take the lead here and give a uniqueness score.
1: Well, I don't mean, I, I know that I'm really not going to sway your score, but this is another area where it's like, if it's not a 10, it's a nine and a half, because no one made movies like Chaplin. There were three major American comedians at this time. It was Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Harold Lloyd. And Harold Lloyd's movies are really sweet and really sincere, but they're probably the least artistically accomplished. Buster Keaton just had a very different style of comedy than Chaplin did, and it was much more reliant on stunt work. Uh, so they're like big, burly kind of action-y movies with a lot of comedy in it and, you know, some some romance as well. Chaplin really wanted to reflect the plight of people in America and across the world. And whether or not that works for you, I think that it's kind of undeniable that no one was doing it the way he was doing it and also trying to make you laugh while he made you cry. There really just is no parallel for him. And so for me, this is another 10 out of 10.
0: Uh, I'll give him an eight eight and a half out of 10 here, Uh, largely because of my ignorance, but also to say that, like, I really enjoyed his characters that he brought about. And I think that that is a unique characteristic that not all directors have in them to to give you characters that are fascinating and well acted. So. I'll give him an eight and a half on uniqueness. Bob, I am coming out to a 40.5 out of 50
1: here. I am coming out to a very, very high 47 out of 50. I think Chaplin, whatever you think of the flaws in his movies, I don't think there are very many, but I think that our metric is really well-suited to Chaplin when it just comes to things like, does he build a, a coherent world? Does Is he unique among his peers? Like, you're just going to get high marks for being the guy that, made silent movies when no one else was making silent movies. Like, that's unique in itself. So, uh yeah, we're coming out to an average, Brad, of a 43.75 out of 50, or a, an 87.5 out of 100.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it's probably a good place for Chaplin to fit, and I, I know that I was not as high on his movies as most people are, and to that I say,
1: I don't give a rip. Ah, there it is. <laughs> All right, man, listen, we have to drink five whiskeys before we throw over to our pre-recorded interview with Mariah Gates. I do want to Bob, we get to drink five. Whiskies. We we get to. I was just going to say, I don't want to give the impression that we're going to drink five whiskeys and then go interview Mariah Gates. Uh, that would be a <laughs> recipe for disaster. But stick around for that at the back half of the show. For now, Brad, let's dive into these whiskeys. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, Brad, we have a gauntlet in front of us. My dude, there are five whiskeys that need to be drank. Mm, They they must needs be drunk (laughs) to to speak in old King James language. We've got five whiskeys from very different distillers here in front of us. Two of the distillers are old faithful, old classics on the Film and Whiskey podcast. One of the distillers is brand new to us. Brad, I don't know where to quite start here, but let me at least give the names of what we're drinking today. So we've got two whiskeys from Tenth Mountain Whiskey, a rye and a bourbon. We've got two experimental bourbons from New Riff. One is called the Yellow Leaming and one is called the Blue Claridge. And then we have the newest release from Bardstown Bourbon Company, their Discovery Mm. Series number 10 which has been picking up rave reviews all over the place, including from our friend Zach Johnston at Uprocks, who just ranked it in his top 20 whiskeys of the year so far. Yeah, and uh, he's right. Oh. Uh, I've <laughs> tried three of these five whiskeys. I will not say which ones I haven't tried until we get to them, but Brad, what order should we go in here?
0: Um, Let's, let's just go ahead and start at the top. I would love to talk about this Bardstown
1: Discovery. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So we're starting with the highest proof offering that we have here. This is a 114.24 proof whiskey.
0: And I, I will say this is based on the fact that I've already drank all five. So, Bob, if you want to start somewhere else, because fun fact, if you don't drink uh, whiskey consecutively, you should always start with the lower proof whiskey first and then move your way up. Because mm-hmm. if you start off with the one fourteen. Your palate's going to be fried for the 86, 90 proof something.
1: So if you want to start somewhere else, you by all means, my friend. No, let's do it. I feel like I, I kind of like put my thumb on the scale a little bit when I started talking about all the accolades as things won. So the Discovery Series from Bardstown is a blended whiskey from different products that they source. And it is just like a fantastic example of what blending whiskey can be. So this mm-hmm. particular blend is made up, I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you guys, 62% 9-year-old Kentucky bourbon, 18% 13-year Kentucky bourbon, 8% 6-year Kentucky bourbon, 10% 10-year Georgia bourbon, and 2% 10-year Tennessee bourbon. So this thing has some age to it, Brad. It kind of shakes out to be about 75% corn, 13 rye, 10 barley. And then uh, 0.5% of something else, I assume wheat. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> so uh, it's it's funny. Like they listed out on the sell sheet of like, oh, this, this has a nine-year bourbon in it. And it'll say like 75, 15, 10. But it won't say what the 75, 15, 10 are. Right. So I'm right. just guessing what the grains are in this. In any case, it's gotten rave reviews. Let's try the thing. Yeah. So when I
0: jumped into this on the nose do you remember i feel like this was around in our
1: childhood cream savers oh yeah the life savers that had like the the yep. strawberry woven into them and stuff there was strawberry and
0: orange mm-hmm. those were like the only two flavors this is an orange cream saver bob wow it's Man. like got just a little bit of citrus to it but it's creamy and delicious, there's caramel, there's vanilla I got some like toasted almond nuttiness on the nose This is friggin' incredible,
1: dude You know what? It it almost comes across on the nose like a really solid weeded bourbon to me It's mm-hmm. even more than just like, oh, it's a bourbon with wheat in it It has that classic cola note we get But I almost had to remind myself that I wasn't just drinking a Coca-Cola Because it it smells like a Coca-Cola in a glass to me Like there's almost an effervescence to it. And when I went to taste it, it tastes thin and thick at the same time. I don't don't know how to explain it. Like (laughs) it has that sort of like thin mouthfeel you get from like really high proof whiskey sometimes because of the Mm -hmm. alcohol content. But then the flavor is complex enough that it kind of comes in waves and it really coats your palate. For me, it was like spicy black pepper coca-cola and then like a hint of a dark chocolate ice cream it was really creamy with some cacao to it i really liked that
0: yeah for me on the flavor you you get the caramel there's brown sugar there's vanilla but the there's a ton of like a the orange moved from a creaminess to like have you ever had the little dark chocolate oranges that like split off into little slices oh yeah, yeah it reminded me of that And then there was uh, I didn't get quite black pepper, but there was some some sort of baking spices mixture in there Mm -hmm. that had tons of complexity and flavor and like balanced out the sweetness really, really well. And then as I got into the finish, it it moved back into the creaminess. There's vanilla. Uh, The nuttiness came back through. Bob, this is a
1: whiskey. I will say that. I am slightly lower on it than I think both you and Zach are. And it's because of the finish for me. The finish got really herbal for me. Like, huh? Yeah. Like, like almost vegetal kind of it. It it took on like a really grassy character, which is fine. But it just kind of turned a little bit bitter for me towards the end. Whereas the front of it was like Coca-Cola, like a really nice, bright, uh, you know, corn syrupy kind of thing. It didn't finish that way, which is fine. But, you know, I I just kind of expected it to kind of follow the trajectory that it had. It didn't quite finish that way for me. But I think once again, uh, listen, Bardstown can do no wrong in our eyes. Like (laughs) they never have. They never will. Their products are all good. Like the worst Bardstown product I've had is still like an eight and a half out of ten. And this is probably better than that. Yeah,
0: Bob, I, I know that like whiskey tasting is an opinion based endeavor, But you're wrong. This is nearly a perfect whiskey. Uh, Bob, this Bardstown Discovery 10 series is one of the best bourbons that we have had in an extraordinarily long time. Wow. Like, it's at the perfect proof point, the perfect balance, perfect flavors. I could drink bottle after bottle of this. Why did you pick
1: this? Why did you pick this to start with? Have you ever heard of burying the lead? Like... This is what we end with, man. That's what, This is when you say, this is the best thing I've had in forever. Do you want to know the reality of the
0: situation? Yeah, let's hear it. I knew that if we spent time talking about the other ones, we would we would get to the end and be like, oh, we, we got to hurry up and like finish this. <laughs> That's fair. And
1: not take as much time to talk about how incredible this whiskey is. Well, let's get into the next two, Brad, and I think that we started off in such a high proof point. Let's go to the lower proof ones, and those are the 10th Mountain Whiskies. Now, we've never had this brand before. Uh, they, they were kind enough to send us each a full bottle of their rye and a full bottle of their bourbon. And the thing that immediately stood out to me, Brad, beyond the 92 proof point, is that it proudly states on the front that it is aged for one year. We have not had a lot of one-year whiskeys on this podcast. No. No. It is kind of common knowledge among distillers that rye ages a little more rapidly in terms of tasting mature uh, than bourbon does. I don't think any distillers out there would say this is fully mature at one year, right? So what I'm thinking is that 10th Mountain is probably a newer brand. It seems like they are distilling their own stuff, which I think is – huge awesome right yeah like they're not sourcing this they're just coming out the gate and saying like hey we're gonna put out a really young whiskey if you like where it's at at one year stick with us at two stick with us at three and four i like i hope they get to a point where they're doing freaking bald and bond in a couple years that would be awesome
0: yeah that that would be incredible i i love when distilleries are willing to put their money where their mouth is and say hey like we are distilling our own our own juice and we want to get it out there
1: for people to try now so uh, what say you Bob do you want to try the rye or the bourbon first let's start with the bur uh, sorry let's start with the rye just because it's on my left here so it's the first one I'm looking at I really like the nose on this Brad it is immediately apparent how young this is because the color on it is just not what we normally get on a well-aged rye it's very grain forward on the nose but it doesn't smell like sour rye to me. There's a lot of really bright fruit here. I get a lot of peach on this. I'm actually really interested to see where this goes. I know you've tasted both of them. These are the two that I have not tasted yet. So I'm going to give it a sip while you describe your experience.
0: Yeah, so... I... As I said, I love what they're doing here. I, I'm a fan of them, f- you know, foraying out into the world of whiskey and, and, and trailblazing in their own path. But I, I'm using a lot of big, nice words to say that this smells like nail polish remover, and it tastes like it, too.
1: Oh, yeah. See, I'm not getting that at all, Brad. I, get, I I'm having a vastly different experience than you, actually. I'm really glad to hear that. Like, is this is this there yet? No, but there's nothing offensive on the palate. It's I think, honestly, the worst thing I can say about it is that it has no complexity to it yet, but it tastes like a really darn good rye whiskey. And I'm expecting that, like, the additional aging is going to bring that complexity and some of the mouthfeel to it as well. It's a little bit thin, but it's got the sweetness that I'm looking for in a like a finished rye whiskey. Uh, it's got a little bit of that fruit note to it as well. At one year, I was expecting this to be a heck of a lot worse than it is. This is actually pretty good. I will leave it there and jump on over to the bourbon. <laughs> I guess I will say too, you're the resident rye person on this podcast. Uh, but I can see that this rye is already like in my preferred rye wheelhouse. So that's why I think that's why I'm excited about it because. I expect it to stay in this flavor profile and just pick up some more character as it goes.
0: Yeah, I, it, I'm it. i with you. It will pick up more character as it goes.
1: <laughs> All right, let's jump into the bourbon. Uh, this one has been sitting out for as long as the rye has. I've had these both kind of airing out since we started this recording. The bourbon is more subtle on the nose than the rye, but it does, to its credit, have quite a bit of... Like a maple brown sugar nose to it. Yep, it it does. If you say it does, Bob. Man, you are not you're not giving them any credit here, Brad. Like I no. I, wow. I'll I'll just I'll just get my thoughts out
0: of the way, mm-hmm. Bob. This isn't good whiskey. The rye's not good whiskey. They they need to put more time in. It, it needs more time in the barrel desperately mm. the bourbon has a little bit more flavor to it than the rye does uh the, which is surprising because i was expecting the rye to be a little bit better at this age statement but the bourbon actually has a tiny bit of a, a brown sugary note to it um actually I, I like your note it it has a hint of maple syrup mm. but beyond that it is high in ethanol Low in flavor. Uh, like, I've had a few white dogs that I like more than this.
1: And wow, that's, man. that's saying a lot. We have had brands on this podcast before that we have really tiptoed around our thoughts on. And A, safe to say you have not done that today. You've not tiptoed here. <laughs> I appreciate that you haven't. But let me also say this. I'm not tiptoeing here either. I'm legitimately in the complete opposite place that you are on these. Brad, like I was expecting... To not like these, I am very pleasantly surprised with these because when I've tasted young whiskey or white dog, right, like unaged whiskey, the grain is the thing that you notice the most. And I will say that whatever they've done with this one year whiskey, it doesn't taste like aggressively grainy to me. It tastes like a whiskey that I don't know how to explain it. It's almost like (laughs) when you're like adjusting the color on a picture and you kind of desaturate it a little bit. You know, like Mm -hmm. take the the vibrance out of it. It has finished, and when I say finished, mature whiskey character to it. But it's like they just kind of turn the dial down a little bit. And I'm okay with that. It almost tastes just kind of like diluted whiskey a little bit. It's really good. And I think that at two years, at four years, this is going to be darn good stuff. And I don't mind it at one year. In fact, I would say, like, if you want to try a one-year whiskey, I don't know that you could do any better than this. How much does it cost? I have no idea. Hmm that that would that would be interesting for me. It was it was free ninety nine for us, Brad. That's daggone right. It was. <laughs> that is a great price to pay for whiskey, Bob. <laughs> All right, listen, we've got two more to try. Let's try these new riffs. These are both bottled and bond expressions. They are well, they're they're characterized as straight bourbon whiskeys at hundred proof. I'm not sure if they're technically bottled and bond. They are experimental runs from New Riff using different kinds of corn. And in one corn uh, in one experiment they used what's called yellow leaming corn and in the other one they used what's called blue claridge, I think it's pronounced claridge corn. And it's literally like just to see what the difference is by using two different varietals of corn. I think it's a really mm-hmm. really cool idea and I have to say I did notice a difference between these two products yeah one hundred percent. There is a huge difference here. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Yellow or blue? Let's start with yellow. I'll give my notes real quick because the yellow is like a Bob book special. It's like, I nosed this, and it was like, I don't think I've ever smelled anything as strongly brown sugar that isn't brown sugar. <laughs> like it was just like brown sugar for days. To the point where I started picking up a second note, and I was like, what is that? And the brown sugar kept overwhelming it that I couldn't pick out a second thing. I eventually settled. Was it browner sugar? I eventually settled on black pepper because I was like, I guess it's kind of spicy. But listen, this is not the most complex whiskey in the world, but Bob Book's palate does not care. Like, it is (laughs) super decadent, super sweet. Almost like it almost had a weeded bourbon finish to me. It, ha- it kind of had some of that cola that we got on the Bardstown maple, vanilla, brown sugar. It was just right in my wheelhouse. I was a huge fan of the yellow. Yeah,
0: I, I am mostly with you. I think for me, the other note I got outside of the sweetness was kind of like a really nice, light citrus lemon taste. Hmm. Like there's just a little bit of a lemony feel to this that gave it a little bit of character that transformed it from being a nice light bourbon to something that had a little bit of complexity and really took
1: me in. I, I liked the yellow leaming a lot. On the other hand, we have this blue Claridge. It sounds like maybe you didn't love this one as much. I as I drank it, I thought, I wonder if Brad's going to like this one better just because the yellow was so far up my alley. That I was like, okay, this one is much more oaky, much more spicy. A little bit of rye for me on the palate that the mm-hmm. yellow definitely didn't have. Uh, what were your thoughts on the blue? Incredible. Mm. See, uh, I knew it. Like,
0: Yeah, no, this one was great. There's caramel. There's oak. There's pepper. There's like, not like an older, le- like a new leather feel to it. Uh, on the palate, I had black pepper. There's... A little bit of anise in it, which normally I don't like as a flavor, but it mixed just fine in here. Dude, this was a really interesting, complex, kind of dark-feeling whiskey that I was totally down with this experience. I, I I would take the Blue Claridge
1: any day of the week. This is why I love doing this podcast with you. like, And this is also why New Riff likes sending us stuff to try, because... <laughs> Now we get to promote both products and suggest that you go buy both products. I really liked yeah. these both. The yellow was definitely my preference. The blue seems like it's definitely your preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah the the blue the blue clairage had a depth to it
0: that I I think was missing on the yellow. But that being said, like if I scored both of these out of fifty. I'd probably land on like a 37, 38 for the yellow mm-hmm. and like a 39 or 40 on the blue. Like they're both really
1: solid, like B plus whiskeys. Yep. Listen, sometimes you just want to eat cake frosting right out of the tub. And <laughs> and that's what the yellow leeming is. Like I'm all for it. Sometimes I just don't want to have to think about how complex the whiskey is. I want it to be decadent. I want it to be sweet. And that's exactly what that is. And it freaking checked the boxes that I needed tonight.
0: I remember one time Haley made like a homemade vanilla frosting, and we had uh, like the cinnamon graham crackers in the house. Mm. And I had like, you know, been in a little bit of an unhealthy period of my life, and I was gaining a little weight. And I would just eat graham crackers with vanilla frosting yeah. on them. <laughs> and it was the most incredible thing. When Haley found out that I was doing that, she was like, well, no wonder you're gaining
1: weight. Like, you're just (laughs) eating the worst possible thing in the world. Let me live my life. That's what that's what I say to that. Yeah. All right, man. We have an interview to get to. We have brought back our friend Mariah Gates to talk about the top five movies she would recommend for beginners who are new to silent movies. I'm super excited to talk to her. Let's get to it, Brad. Yeah, man. Excited for it. Let's get to it. All right, we are here with Mariah Gates. You might remember her from our episode a few weeks ago on City Lights. Mariah, thank you for joining us again.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I mean, you are the resident expert at silent films on film and whiskey, and the competition was just me, (laughs) so, like, you pretty easily beat me out in that that capacity. (laughs) But what we wanted to do is, we know that most people that are listening to this episode have either never seen a silent film, or if they've watched a few on our account, it's just Chaplin. And Mariah, I want to throw over real quick to a clip from before we started recording the episode. Brad was telling you about how City Lights was the first silent movie he'd ever seen. And you had such a great take on people seeing silent films for the first time. I want to just include that sound clip here and then we'll get back into talking about what we're talking about.
0: Now, I, I will say I told Bob, I was like, there's an element of I I know I don't know what I don't know. And so I don't totally know how to rate, in and you know the ranking is at the end of the day is somewhat meaningless. But like you know, I don't really know how to rate him because I have a
2: lot other with silent, silent films. That happens a lot with against. silent, not even just like a novice within the silent community, silent film fan community, because it, it was depending on who you talk to. If you're like talking about actual moving image, or if you're talking about pre cinema, you know, like the the horse. Mm -hmm. you know images you basically have 40 30 to 40 years worth of cinema right Mm -hmm. that's a long time and there's people who love the the later era stuff who like will give like a fragment one star or they'll give i particularly love the 19 teens they'll give like films from the 19 teens that maybe you know maybe they're a little more archaic in the way that they the the art i mean i wouldn't say archaic the art is different yeah, it's a yeah. different mode of, of expression, right? But they don't like it. So they'll give it like one star. And I'm like, that's a masterpiece of 1911. Yeah. What are you doing? And this <laughs> is someone who has also seen thousands of silent films. So uh, this is to say that I think there. this is an era that is so, like, it's not really a genre. It is isn't. It is a, an era of filmmaking. And there's so much yeah. difference within that. You know, like I know some people who love like 1902. That's their... Mm-hmm. That's their favorite era, and it's yeah. like, what? But also, 1902 is great. I actually have—I think—my <laughs> one of my films is from that era. But the, the point we, we is, we don't want to offend no, the
1: 1902 fanboys <laughs> out there.
2: There is like no wrong way to engage with silent. That's
1: great. With to your hear. ranking
2: and and watching a silent, because there is so much there. Yeah. You, yeah. you hear there's ninety percent lost, but the ten percent that isn't that isn't mm-hmm. lost is still thousands and thousands. They were making, you know, like um, Lois Weber was making a film a week for like ten years. That's a, that's a lot of movies. Lot of movies. So, you know, there's,
0: I was like, there's no I judgment. All I hear you doing is giving me permission to give this a one out of 10 just to mess with Bob. There's,
2: I mean, you could, but there's, I'm just saying there's no, there's no judgment because it is, it's vast.
1: Awesome. You made a really great point the first time you were here talking about how silent film is not really a genre. It's 40 years of movies. They just didn't have sound. So it's really hard to lump them all together. And yet I feel like Most people probably do lump them together in that way. And so we have a task ahead of us today. We asked Mariah to join us and give us her top five films for beginning your silent film journey. And I'm really interested to see what Mariah has to say, because like, you know, Brad, we talked about the uh, the sight and sound poll when that came out and how there's so many different ways of making your list. Is it just, hey, I think these are the 10 best films ever made. Hey, these are my 10 favorite movies hey, I know what movies are going to get voted for and I want to shine a light on some other stuff and hopefully that can get included too. And I feel like, Mariah, you could probably approach a list like this. I
2: actually had a sight and sound ballot. Oh, hey. Um, Yes, and one of the films that I was going to mention in this top five was on my sight and sound ballot. My um, strategy was exactly what you pointed out. I had one film that... Just barely didn't make the 100 last year. It still didn't make the 100 this year. I'm mad about it. But, oh, no, it did. It did. It made the 100 this year. But the last 10 years, it didn't. And so I, it's from a director where this is not my favorite of her films. But I wanted it to get in the top 100. Mm -hmm. So I had it on my ballot. And then most of the other films were, um, I'm assuming... These aren't having this, like, don't have a, a Ice Cube's chance in hell to get on the top 100. But I, I know that when it came out 10 years ago, I looked at all the individual critics whose opinions I find interesting, not that I agree with, but that I find interesting to see, like, what were their 10 films. So I assumed there are enough people who might find me interesting um, that they would click on it and then look at the 10, and then I would have nine films on there that I felt. I wanted at least the, the 12 people who might click on my name will watch these films. So that was my strategy. Actually,
1: I love that strategy. And I feel like you could kind of apply that strategy here. It's got to be hard to just pick five movies to direct a silent film newbie to.
2: <laughs> yeah, this was very stressful. I was thinking I had a, different, a couple different five films until I landed on what I decided to do was you know, like part of me is like, I'm just going to give you five films that are my favorites, right? Hmm. But I tend to like a very distinct time within this period that uh, I believe when we, when we were talking about City Lights, um, there was some issue with like the voting of like, this is the only silent film I've given, I can't give it a 10, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I
2: don't want to throw people into the deep end. So I threw that list out. <laughs> I was like this is a specific kind of film grammar. It's a specific art. It's a specific way of telling storytelling that you kind of got to work up to. Right. <laughs> so uh, I didn't, I didn't want to throw people into five films that are like, you know, physics 12 instead of the physics with no math <laughs> kind of, I want to, I want to work them up to uh, those films. So I, I went with five films that assuming you've never seen a silent film, except the chaplain's. Um, so there's no chaplain on here. I'm assuming everyone listening, watched the chaplains along with you guys. What would, what would get you a good film grammar so that if you like these five films, you will then want to seek out mm. more. That ended up being my strategy.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I don't think we should beat around the bush here. I made a list of five of mine as well. And I assume that there will be some overlap, especially hearing like your strategy now. But if there's any left over, I might give those as like honorable mentions uh, after Mariah does hers. I would love for you to walk us through your top five, Mariah.
2: Sure. So I I, I started with, I, this, this is where you got to start. It's a trip to the moon. Mm. It's you, you, you may be familiar with it if you've seen Martin Scorsese's Hugo or the um, Smashing Pumpkins music video. Although I know that's the 90s now and now that's 30 years old. So I don't know how many people have seen that <laughs> video anymore. But um, <laughs> for those of you who have you you probably have seen the imagery from a trip to the moon it's a a rocket ship on like a cheese moon with a face mm-hmm. um it's it's an interesting film because it is the first sci-fi film it is meliès doing a little bit of of um his old school magician trickery with this new technology um but it's also a play on french uh fairy tales <laughs> Um, that was a, the stage versions of fairy tales was a big thing. That's why a lot of those early French silent films are like the cabbage fairy and and other weird (laughs) magic related things. That was, that was, that's just part of French culture. Um, but this is such an influential film. It's hard to watch it and not see every single other science fiction space film ever referencing bits of it. Um, it's a bit weird. It's also kind of anti-imperialist, which is Fun, um, so you can watch it just for fun. You can watch it on a very deep philosophical level. You can watch it on a deep literary level, or again, you can just watch it because it is very trippy.
1: Very, very um, and it's much only
2: so. and it's only thirteen minutes long. I recommend finding the Lobster Films transfer. It is um, there was a hand painted uh, negative found in nineteen ninety three, and I believe the Lobster Films edition of A Trip to the Moon is a digitized version of that. And so you get that beautiful early color as well. Mm. And I think that's really important. That is how it was supposed to be seen. They used to hand paint every um, frame so it, it wouldn't be exactly the same everywhere, you know, because they would send those those prints out everywhere. But that version is the closest to what Melies wanted people to see.
1: I love it. All right. So number five is Georges Melies' A Trip to the Moon.
2: Trip let's the moon. Let's
1: hear number four.
2: Okay, number four was my sight and sound, was on my sight and sound ballot. It's from 1916. It is Lois Weber's Shoes. It is a melodrama um, about a working, uh, not a working girl because she's not a sex worker, Um, a woman who works at a five and dime store Mm. and she supports her parents and her dad is an alcoholic and he takes all her money and she just needs a new pair of shoes and she may find herself becoming the other kind of working girl in order to get a new pair of shoes. Jeez. Um, but it's really, yes, but it's, it's, it's a bit bleak. Um, it does, nece- ne- does not necessarily leave you thinking, like, the world is a great place. Um, but <laughs> what's interesting for me about it is that Lois Weber was this filmmaker who saw – film not just as a medium for entertainment but a medium for social change and so she made some of her films are not well um they did not age well like she made some eugenics films you have to mention that because it's important to know that that's not good but some of her other films that aren't (laughs) on that line shoes is a movie i think um that has aged beautifully and really is about the exploitation of women in the workforce. And um, it's got a beautiful performance from Mary McLaren and it's just, it's a gorgeous film. And I think a really important film.
1: Sounds like a blast. Yeah. Honestly though, I'm not familiar with shoes. This is one that I am going to have to seek out. Like I've, I've never heard of this movie.
2: I think it's on criterion channel still. Okay. you have criterion channel. It's definitely on Blu-ray. It was part of the keynote's pioneers of early silent cinema um, set, I believe. And then I think, uh, Milestone may have put it out as well, so there's a v- few ways to watch it. Awesome. And I was not the only person who had it on my Sight and Sound ballot. I'm, I think it was, um, um oh my god, she writes for New York Times, Nola Dargis. Dargis. I think she, yep. I think she also had. shoes on her Sight and Sound ballot, and I was like, well, just two of us. You're in good company. So. There you go.
1: <laughs> All right, what's coming in at number three?
2: Okay, number three. I, I, as much as I love the the teens, I wanted to get into like the beat of the silent era, which is the 1920s. I also really love John Gilbert. Um, so I have to have a John Gilbert film. This is Flesh and the Devil. Mm-hmm. It's Greta Garbo, John Gilbert, Lars Hansen. I believe I mentioned Barbara Kent previously also, because mm-hmm. she's in Lonesome. So this is the second Barbara Kent film. It's probably the sexiest silent film. I'm At least in the top five sexiest silent films. Uh, Greta Garbo literally will eat you alive with her face in this movie, with her eyes. Like she's so sexy in this movie, it's hard to even think about it. <laughs> John Gilbert also very sexy, but basically the plot is that Greta Garbo is so sexy that two men almost die. That's the movie. Yeah,
1: that's. I mean, it sounds plausible to me.
2: That's the movie, <laughs> um, and it's it's shot by Clarence Brown, who would go on to the in the '30s make some of the best Garbo and. Um, Joan Crawford movies. Uh, so he was a great actress director. Mm. Um, and this movie is just is so good.
1: Man, I love these so far. All right, let's hear number two.
2: Okay, number two, maybe the first silent film I ever saw. My dad found a copy of it on VHS when we were out of town one time and he bought it and he was so excited because it, it it didn't used to be on available. And he was like, Oh my God, I remember this movie from when I was a kid. Not that he was alive when it came out, but I think he saw it like as a rerun on TV or something as a kid. He was so excited to show it to us. It's so good. It's Metropolis. Yeah. it's Metropolis. Goes. You can't, you can't go wrong with Metropolis. Again, it's sci-fi. It is so influential, not just on all the music videos, <laughs> There's so many music videos based on this movie, but you can see it in um, a lot of contemporary movies. The s- styling of the city, mm-hmm. um, you can see it in, in Blade Runner, in yep. so many other science fiction films in the last, even last couple of years, have riffed on Metropolis. It has Brigitte Helm in it, who's one of my favorite actresses. If you like her in this movie, you should just watch every single one of her movies that are available because she truly was one of the great – not just one of the great silent film actresses. She's one of the great actresses, period. Hmm. And um, she was German but not a Nazi. As soon as the Nazis took over, she was like, bye – so she's also unproblematic German actor from the Xana. <laughs> there you go. Which is, which is, there's a few where you're like, oh, you're terrible, but you're a good actor. Right. Brigitte Helm, good actor and said, you know, no to the Nazis. So that's great. Um, it's just, it's it's a great film. I don't know what there is to say about Metropolis say, other than it's so good. I was going to
0: say, I'm looking at the some of the the stills from it and it, it reminds me of... Uh, of the of Batman from Tim Burton, Oh 100%. yeah, Tim Burton like, uh...
2: definitely played on it. Um, the the android in it was um, Star Wars fans will see yeah. <laughs> parallels there. Um, what I will say is there are basically two versions of Metropolis. There's the normal Metropolis, and there's Giorgio Moroder's Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I would suggest watching normal Metropolis, how Fritz Lang intended it to be. But if you like it. It's worth watching the Giorgio Moroder, especially if you enjoy 80s, like dumb 80s pop music, because it is a different experience. It's a totally different movie. They add these pop songs like um, Queen wrote some of the songs. and
1: Eurythmics, I, I think, is in there too. Eurythmics, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah.
2: If you like new wave music, it's like it's not Metropolis anymore. It's its own. There's a reason they call it Giorgio Moroder's Metropolis. It is its own thing at that point, but I am a fan of it. But I wouldn't want it to be your first way to watch Metropolis, if that makes sense.
1: So I had never seen Metropolis, you know, until about a decade ago. Kino Lorber released a uh, Blu-ray called The Complete Metropolis. They finally found uh, like an existing print of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like so many of these stories that it was just like deteriorating in a back room somewhere. They found a complete print of this movie. And no one had ever seen it. It's like the first time they were able to piece it all together and they released it's a two and a half hour silent movie, Brad. And like the the best thing I can say about it to influence you to go watch this movie is it flies by. It is like
2: it does. I it can't believe so this movie
1: is is <laughs> is that long. Um, Incredibly influential movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. Metropolis.
2: And another film that's very anti the man, anti um taking advantage of the working class, very pro union pro like workers unite. It's, it's really fascinating. So it's another film that like, if you just watch it on the level of your, you want to watch a good sci-fi, you can do that. But then if you want to go deeper, there's many, many, many levels to this movie.
1: All right. We've got one more left. I'm anxious to see what your number one is. Mariah.
2: Taking it back to comedy. (laughs) I can't not mention Buster Keaton. Um, I personally, I think you should just watch every Buster Keaton movie. Um, and they are all on Criterion Channel right now. But the one that I particularly love is The Cameraman. Oh, me
1: too. Yes.
2: It's so sweet. It's one of the best romantic comedies. He's, he's so, like, you get everything. In this movie where, you know, his other films, you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and they're all cohesive because they're all Keaton. But this one, you really get all the different facades of what he does best, which is the physical comedy, the camera movements, and the romance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he does Shadow Ball in this, too, which is really fun. So you get a little baseball, if, if, if that's your thing. And there's a cute monkey.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the selling point. So, there's a cute monkey.
2: <laughs> there's a cute monkey. It's like, what else do you need? <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's Keaton and Marceline day and it's just this beautiful romantic comedy with a little with a monkey. chaos towards yeah. the end. Yeah. There's like a riot towards the end and the monkey is amazing and it's just really good.
1: So in, of- in my list, I, I wanted to pick a Keaton. I picked the cameraman. That's always been my favorite Keaton movie. And I'm so glad that like in the last 10 years or so people have started to appreciate it on a level that they didn't before. Um, I think, again, that has a lot to do with the fact that it's finally become available, like on Blu-ray. It's been Yeah, Criterion
2: put that one out as well.
1: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if I can add one to the list, if there's one movie that I would suggest everyone on Earth needs to watch at some point. I stayed up really late one night, Brad. I watched this movie because I knew that it was regarded as, like, a classic of world cinema. It rocked my world to the extent that, like, I couldn't sleep that night. And it is The Passion of Joan of Arc. Oh yes. Um, it is probably if I was making a list, Brad, of like the ten greatest films ever made, this is like maybe in my top five. It is. It features the greatest performance ever put on film.
2: Yes, Falconetti. Um, she's she's brilliant in this
1: absolutely haunting movie. Uh, the, Talk about so, they
2: had faces then. Yeah. Right. She has so the only face. Yeah.
1: I am like I. I'm very sorry to end on a note where I'm talking about watching a film that is literally like a, a beat by beat recreation of the trial and death of Joan of Arc. (laughs) But but damn it, if that isn't just a perfect movie. And I hope that that gives you, Brad, and like everyone listening, a, a clearer picture on the breadth and the depth of silent film. We have everything from Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin to these incredible classics of world cinema like Metropolis that their influence stretched for decades. You know, Mariah talked about uh, uh, Blade Runner and how that is like so clearly based on Metropolis. I really hope, Brad, that we've given you a, a couple movies to add to your watch list today. Yeah, I,
0: like I said, uh, one one movie a week is not enough for me. I need to watch more and more films.
1: <laughs> well, Mariah, we can't thank you enough for joining us again. Uh, I know you you told us a few weeks ago when you were here, but where can our listeners find you?
2: Um, the best place to find me these days is on Substack. Um, I used to be very active on Twitter, but Twitter is dying. Um, but on Substack, (laughs) .substack oldfilmslicker.substack.com, I have my weekly directed by women viewing guide where I write about seven films each week to give you a film a day directed by a woman to watch. Um, and I guarantee you I'll never run out of films. There are so many. And then I also write a lot about silent silent film on there as well. And um, they're trying to be sort of a social thing, not just a newsletter. Mm. So there's like notes where I occasionally post random things, um, like photos with quotes that I've read while I'm researching a silent film that no one cares about <laughs> um, <laughs> to try to get people to care. Um, so so that's that's really the best, the best place to find everything. And I, I also share my writing there um, as well. Mostly not about silent films. I tend to be on the bad romantic comedy beat, hmm. so I don't know when this airs if I'll have watched another bad romantic comedy. But um, the thing is, I actually love romantic comedies, and that's why I'm so critical on the ones coming out today because they're bad, <laughs> and they should be better. <laughs> they should be better. Just because they're out and we having something doesn't mean that it's good. And that is my. Right. That's going to be my. When when you can watch The Cameraman. <laughs> like, absolutely. I'm gonna, you know, say so I, that's that's the best place to find me. I would
0: say Bob and I watched uh, way back in like season one or two when Harry met Sally.
2: That's the best romantic, comedy. and yeah. <laughs> yes, yep. That's all that needs to be said. <laughs> that's it. That's frankly, that is the movie for modern romantic comedies that are like using modern technique, modern you know writing, mm-hmm. modern characterization, modern whatever. That's the that's the rubric. And yeah. it, it the reason it's so good, I'm sorry, I'm gonna I just this is not silent film related, but the reason it's so good is the characters feel like real people. Yeah. And what happens with romantic comedies today is they take the, the plot beats, but they don't craft characters. Mm-hmm. And that is why most romantic comedies today are garbage.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the final word from Mariah Gates. (laughs) (laughs)
2: All
1: right, everybody. We will be back on Tuesday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G., and we'll see you next time.